Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to get the chance to speak with Dr. Angela Lim about an initiative that she co-founded called Clearhead. Make sure to check out their website in the show notes. As well as that, we find out all about her life and what led her to New Zealand. If you enjoy this episode, then keep in mind that there's more than 235 others in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information and videos and articles at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this interview with Angela. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Angela Lem, who's the CEO and co-founder of Clearhead. Uh, it's great to be able to talk with you because we're about to break for Christmas, so we've kind of squeezed this in in the last working day, and I really appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to finding out about Clearhead and what it is, what it is that you're doing, what your hopes are for the future. But what I like to do is go back in time with people because I'd love to understand what's led them to be involved in their initiatives. So in your case, could you just rewind the clock and tell us about when you were, say, four or five years old? Um, <laughs> where, where were you living and what was life like for you? Wow. Um, I think I was a very naughty four or five years old. I think my mom um, always said that I was getting in her hair. Um, I grew up in Malaysia in Johor Bahru. Um, and yeah, I was, um, uh, I had two younger siblings, um, well, three years younger. So they would have just been newborns when I was at that age. And Johor, that's just near Singapore, isn't it? That's right. So I, I actually studied in Singapore um, and I used to say that I was an international traveler by the age of seven because um, I would have to wake up at 4 a.m. and um, make my own lunch and then catch the school bus. It takes about three hours to get to school. Um, and then, yeah, and then, um, and then back the other way as well. In Wellington, I had a flatmate who was from Johor. So he used to tell me about it. So that's why I know that it's right near Singapore. <laughs> yeah, not, not many people do. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Great. So what was that like then um, going to Singapore for education? I guess a way of life almost, right? Because um, that was all I, my friends were. My friends were other Malaysians that um, went to school in Singapore and we would spend all our social time in the school buses. Um, and... Um, it was very academically focused, so um, I guess something that I don't necessarily agree with, which, which is that the worth of a person is just the grades that they get. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, um, Asia has a very different uh, way of life that, um, that I think it, it bred, I guess, discipline um, in me, but I think that I really enjoy sort of the the creativity and freedom that um, living in somewhere like New Zealand allows. Um, Singapore in particular is known for the really high education standards as well, isn't it? Yes, um, it's very academically focused for sure. <laughs> and so what was that like for you being from Malaysia, but then studying in Singapore? Did you, did, yeah, in terms of your identity, did that get affected by that? <laughs> this is a, a running joke where like, you know, obviously Singapore is well regarded on an international stage, um, but we often say that a lot of the successful 
um, well, a lot of the success, whether that's you know academically as students or at the business world, is driven by Malaysians that <laughs> live in Singapore. Um, so there's a, a real sense of pride um, of being a Malaysian, um, even if we were going to Singapore to study. So I think like, um, yeah, I think that there is um, there's something about about that about having um, sort of like being proud of who you are and where you come from. Childhood-wise, then, what so, it sounds like studying and education was a really big part of that. Yes. Uh, were there other things that you enjoyed in terms of outdoor <laughs> activities, or was it mainly about studying? Um, I played netball for eight years, um, and so it was, um, it was a team sports that I played. I was very active as a person in terms of like exercising. But to be honest, I think in Asia. Um, pretty much all your life, most of your life is just consumed around going to school or taking extra classes for school. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of what um, I feel doesn't always allow you to develop yourself to be a really rounded person, a well-rounded person. And so that's what I really liked about, you know, moving to New Zealand. Mm. That's an interesting comment. I, I taught English in Japan for a year and some of my classes were basically children coming after school to learn English mm -hmm. and it almost felt like they were burning out at age mm. 16 or 17 because they were studying all day doing these cramming English lessons till late at night and then going back to school in the morning it's quite an intense intense time of life for them yeah exactly and I and that's why I think like if I'm really honest when I think back about like whether I've really grown up with a, a, a childhood. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> it's just been like studying my whole life. Mm. And what brought you to New Zealand then? Um, my parents wanted a better life for us um, as kids. Um, and I think they really saw how competitive Asia was. Um, and unless you were sort of like the top 1% in terms of grades, the opportunity career-wise is very limited. Um, and I think they just wanted um, more opportunities for, for um, me and my siblings. And so that's why we came to New Zealand. And how did they choose New Zealand as opposed to Australia or Canada or somewhere else? <laughs> well, dad graduated from the University of Auckland and um, with an engineering degree. Um, and so that was something that I think has ties and he really enjoyed New Zealand. And um, so that was why we picked New Zealand. Yeah. So do you have memories of arriving and like, how old were you at that point? I was 15. I definitely remember coming <laughs> to New Zealand because um, it was like springtime. But obviously when you come from a tropical country, it was like really cold. And I had like, I had like long sleeves on and I just thought everything was so bright and, and the sky was so blue that the air was so fresh and clean and, and it was so nice. It was like having an air conditioning going like the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was a memorable experience to come to New Zealand. I think the first couple of years was hard in terms of like, um, when you're a teenager acclimatizing to a new high school um, and being so different from everyone else. Um, but after that, I think that I really was able to adjust well into the country, which is nice. So do you remember when your parents first came to you and said, Angela, we're, we're moving to New Zealand? 
Yes, of course I did. <laughs> and I. What was remember, your reaction initially? Well, I, my reaction was, "Okay, I'm not going." <laughs> <laughs> I said I was gonna live alone, and I had all my friends in Malaysia and Singapore, and um, yeah, I I think I threatened many times that I was not going to go, and I was just gonna stay. By myself in Malaysia,、um, I I think when you are at that age, friends for everything,、um, mm. and、um, and that is probably also what made it hard to readjust、um, later on. But、um, but I, of course, looking back on hindsight now, it's the best thing that has ever happened to me moving to New Zealand.、Um, but as a teenager, when friends were everything, it was a really really hard decision to kind of come. It's interesting because we're going to get into talk about your initiative today, but、yeah. in a way, it sounds like you went through some. You know, it would be difficult to leave one country as a fifteen-year-old and move to another <laughs> country. <laughs> yes,、um, yeah, and I guess, I guess, I don't know. I, I think that maybe a part of it and me, and and that I think I discovered much later is that I really enjoy.、Um, New experiences, and、uh, so I think I've traveled something like almost forty countries now.、Um, and, and so I think I'm always now seeking new experiences, and、um, that might have been the you know one of those key turning points that made me feel that I could do that. So you mentioned adapting into life in New Zealand.、Um, yeah, how did that go? Then you had a couple years in high school here. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. The first couple, like, I so I I um I had four years of high school at Howard College.、Um, the first couple of years was really hard.、Um, I think just like making friends was really hard.、Um, like people that because I think I came in when everybody had already found their friend group,、um, and so it was really hard to break in at that that time. And so finding someone、um, that that I could hang out with was was hard the first couple of years and.、Um, One of the things I really liked was being able to、um, uh, sort of join、um, a drama class. I really liked that.、Um, I thought it was fun, and that was something you would never be able to do in Asia. So, <laughs> right. So the education itself was quite different, was it, from what you've、mm-hmm. been used to? Yeah, and it's also a lot more autonomous.、Um, I could pick my own classes,、um, and in Asia, you couldn't really do that. So it was much more regimented. Like these are the criteria. Yeah, this is what、exactly. you have to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that there's、um, a lot more choice around picking pathways that you want to go down much earlier, and in, in in New Zealand than you would in. In Asia, everyone's sort of expected to just go down the same pathway, and then obviously because it's a small funnel, only a small amount of people will be able to progress to the next stage. And I feel it's a comp- it's a very it's a huge waste of people's potential、um, because if people, for example, might be more inclined in in the arts, they don't get to find that out till after high school. So yeah. And what was it like for your father and your mother coming to New Zealand? Like your father sort of knew what it was like. How was it for your mother transitioning to a new place like this?、Um, my mom actually studied in the UK,、um, so she was uh, uh, used to、um, the foreign country as well. But、um, yeah, I think that、um, my parents are really progressive in 
in relative terms to other Asian parents. Um, so I think that they've adjusted well enough. I mean, I think it's a very Asian mentality as well as parents that, you know, you do what needs to be done for the children and a lot of sacrifice. And I think they just saw it as just like something that they had to do. And um, yeah, of course, I'm really grateful for them mm. for doing that. Yeah, that's really good. And for you now, you know, you've been here a while. When people ask you about your backgrounds and things, would you immediately say, I'm a Malaysian? Or would you say, I'm a Kiwi? <laughs> or how does that work in terms of identity? Yeah, I would say that I'm more a Kiwi than a Malaysian. And um, because now I've lived half my life on either either side of the both countries mm-hmm. um but i think that sometimes obviously when people ask you that question they're really trying to figure out what your ancestry is what ethnicity you're from so normally i just make it easy on them to say you know malaysian chinese yeah, yeah. it's interesting because like you i've moved around quite a lot i've lived in six different countries for more than yeah. a year and yeah. it, it's it uh, and I have an accent as well. So um, it's, it's hard for people to pigeonhole me immediately. Yes. Like, <laughs> exactly. But you, you do learn, don't you? Just there's the easy answer and then there's the more complicated answer and you choose <laughs> yes. which one to give. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you're coming to the end of high school. Um, did you know what you wanted to study or, or, or take further or no? No, not at all. <laughs> um, and I think that was like, um, so I went into the first year of university going, like, I don't know what to do. Um, so I was super Asian and I picked the hardest course I could pick, which was at, at the time biomedical science. Um, and I was always interested in science and, and, and the brain. And so, yeah, the, um, I started off with sort of mainly doing psychology and neuroscience papers um and i really loved it um but also could not see myself being stuck in the lab after i graduated um and medicine felt like the best natural transition where i could help people be working on things i was interested in um, and had more more people contact and so i went to medical school after that oh really interesting and so the the origin of choosing that topic like you said it was kind of an Asian thing to do to choose the hard <laughs> subject. Um, can you unpack that a little bit more? Like, was there more? Did you have um, examples in medicine or, or that area? That- no, so I was the first in my, all my extended family to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was more, I think, that like I had a family history of people being entrepreneurs, um, but I didn't really wanted to, I didn't really like the business culture and so I didn't really want to study business that I felt because I felt it was um a lot of it was came quite naturally to me um and and otherwise I could always read up about it um so I just kind of thought well I went to a high school that wasn't very academically focused um and I didn't really know know where I benchmarked against the rest of my peers I guess and so I thought to myself, like, look, if I pick the hardest subject or the hardest course, if I fail miserably at it, I can always pick an easier program. 
Um, but at least I would get a chance to benchmark myself against like everyone else who's working really hard on this really difficult program versus sort of like picking something super easy and then coasting through life. And I just wasn't my style. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was the decision behind why I picked the hardest course. I just wanted to benchmark myself against everyone else. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always find it fascinating to learn because there's pivotal moments in life, isn't there, that you come to. And, and this is an example. You finish your high school. What will you study next? And how do people end up, you know, going off and getting a job and doing something, starting a business, st studying? What do they study? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that like, you know, I think, um, and we'll probably come to it, is that people would say that, oh, I can't believe you studied all these years and you worked as a doctor and you gave it all up. And I never saw it like that. I always just saw it as like just another building block um, and just, you know, next chapter. Um, mm. I never saw any of it as, as a waste. I think it's like that in life, uh, you know, just philosophically speaking, nothing is ever wasted, is it? You know, all of our backgrounds and our origins, sometimes you wonder how this will ever be used. But then usually it comes out years later. You know, like I lived, I mentioned I lived in Japan. So who would have thought my teaching English in Japan would mean that like 12 years later, I became a lawyer who then worked in Japan again, but this time <laughs> as a lawyer, because nice. I knew some language and had the background. Amazing. Yeah. And I think that like, I would also say the same thing about failure. Um, I think people often play to not lose versus play to win. And a lot of that is because they're risk at best. They don't want to fail. Um, and I think I, I develop a healthier relationship about failure and seeing failure more as just a learning experience as long as it's not too detrimental. Yeah, I, I interviewed someone, um, Michael Mayle, who um, founded Cookie Time. So for people in New Zealand listening, it's very well-known cookie. <laughs> and, and he described that before he had the success of cookie time, he had two businesses and they were both failures in the traditional word of failure. Like they, they were not good ideas. They did not work out. But he described it as compost for the new ideas that came later. And if he hadn't had those failures, he would not have had his successes later on which I thought was quite a good way to frame things. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, Clearhead obviously is by more um, visible um, venture that I started with Michael, my co-founder, but actually it's our second startup together. The first one we did when we were both and still working full time. And it was just a side gig that we were just dabbling in. I was also in health tech, but um but, you know, it, we learned a lot of lessons through just that experience that um, um, that allowed, that I think formed a lot of the pivotal decisions that we made when we started Clearhead. Mm. So what were some of the things that you learned from that first one then that, that, that didn't work out? What were some key things? Oh, we learned how hard it was to sell into hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, it meant, and we, we realized that we put in all that effort and we built all this product and nobody saw it because only a handful of people that we were pitching to as decision makers get to see it and learn about it. And um, we could not get them, you know, they loved the idea, which was around how do you support um, innovation um, in the health system as a pipeline. 
Um, but nobody really wanted to properly commit to doing something, you know, like actually implementing it. And I think that was what drove us to build what was predominantly a consumer product. Um, uh, because I think we didn't want to be in a situation where we build all this cool stuff and the impact it could make and nobody gets to hear and, and use it. And so we went down a more consumer route because of um, that experience. Mm. It's really interesting. And hopefully the people listening are, have their ears open fully because it's actually quite common to pivot in that way. You know, you explore a market and then you realize it's not going to work out and you pivot over to this other area. And, you know, probably what you're doing today wouldn't be working the way it is if you hadn't had that experience, right? Yeah, I... I mean, there's obviously a whole host of other factors that was different from the first one. But I do think that we made, we learned a lot about what it means to run a startup in the first one. That meant that I think we were ready to hit the ground running when we started the second one. Mm. Um, and the first one, I think we dabbled in it for about almost two years, um, just on the, as a side gig. Um, but it also helped us realize how important it was to go full-time on something. So um, with the second startup, we, we pretty much spent the first three months just doing the, you know, the set up the business stuff while we were still working um, in our full-time job. But within three months, we kind of went full-time in September, 2018. And that's when I would say the company really started. Um, and, and it, it's very different running something full-time versus um, doing a side gig. Yeah. So talk us through that time in 2018 when you were about to finish up your full-time role and jump into the startup. Like, what was going through your mind and how did you make the decision that this was the right thing to do and, and to transition over? Because lots of the people listening may be having side gigs and doing different things. And it's quite a big call, isn't it, to, to leave the paid position to, to go into this new thing? Yeah. So, I mean, um, so I was ready. I was very, very ready at the start of 2018. I made a promise to myself that I was going to leave clinical work. Um, I always knew that during medical school, I wasn't going to stay a doctor, um, forever. I, I knew it was only going to be for as long as it took for me to figure out what the thing I really wanted to do. Um, and I think that I, I could see myself just going down this treadmill and it was really easy for, for another 20 years to go by and I never made that leap to do what I really wanted. Mm -hmm. And I was really much more interested in innovation and in technology in like much more strategic system thinking um, that, that just like could not see happening in the health sector and I could not um, find opportunities for myself to participate in either. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that like um, I needed to kind of step out of clinical work and see what's out there. Um, I briefly dabbled for a couple of months looking at what jobs are available. Um, and to be honest, all of them were like, you need five years experience managing a team, you needed an MBA. I didn't have any of that. So I think the first few months of 2018, I was like thinking to myself, like, okay, well, the roles that I was potentially interested in, I don't quite qualify for. Um, and really the only way for me to um, do what I really wanted to do um, was that someone had to take a punt and on a left field candidate like myself. 
Um, but I think that when you kind of make a decision that you were going to do something, I think I believe like, I guess the universal lines and the opportunities presents itself. You're more open to seeing the opportunities, etc. Um, and what ended up happening was in May, I met what would become our investor at a conference. Uh, we were just chatting in general about healthcare and, um, uh, and uh, he really thought that we were doing the right, you know, we, we had a, a good, you know, like we knew what we were talking about in terms of the healthcare space and the role of technology to transform it um, and ended up investing in us. And I think that probably the, the, the truth was like me and my co-founder both had mortgages and uh, we would have been difficult for us to leave our full-time job if, if we couldn't do clear head um, while being able to pay ourselves a salary. So we know what a privileged position we are in to be in the situation that we're in. And 99% of startups don't have that luxury. Um, but for us, I guess it wasn't a, it was not a big risk because we both were passionate about social causes. We both, we're at the stage of our career where we felt we could do our own thing um, and we were going to be paid to do it. So, so it was, a, it's an unusual combination, but it did make the, the decision less scary than I think it would be for other people. So it sounds like the investor had belief in what you wanted to do. And that must've been a, a great comfort to know that you weren't launching into the unknown, like that there was somebody that believed in you, <laughs> that yeah. this was a possibility, right? Right, completely. And um, he's been great throughout this whole last two years, um, very supportive. Um, but it, it does make a difference because starting your own thing is really hard uh, because for a very long time, there's a lack of validation that you're on the right track. Um, in fact, for us, it was like, it took us really almost two years um, where we didn't necessarily feel we had the traditional validation of like, you're building the right product, you're solving the right problem. Everyone kind of sort of pats you on the head and say like, you are, you know, like doing a good thing, but you know, like we, the, the metrics of like being paid for what we do and all that kind of stuff just wasn't there. And it, um, in a, in a very capitalistic world, <laughs> you know, where, where money equals value if we're not capturing the revenue models that we wanted, then therefore, we had to ask ourselves, are we really creating the value that we, we, we have promised into society? Yeah, oh, that's really good. So tell us a little bit about Clearhead and um, yeah, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, um, what I was really passionate about was um, solving um, and improving our health outcomes. Uh, when I, my sort of like eight years studying plus three years working, for me, those experiences um, allowed me to understand where all the different challenges our health sector faces. Um, but it also helped me really kind of crystallize like what's the one big hairy problem I wanted to solve. And the main thing when you think about health systems is that they're not able to cope with the, the demand that's coming. You just cannot train enough health workforce. You can't train them fast enough. You can't even afford, even if... Um, even if you wanted to. Um, so what is the role of technology to augment and support our workforce? Um, and what does it mean to kind of have the consumer be the one driving the care that they get? What does it mean to get truly 24-7 care, you know, you know, 2 a.m. on a Saturday night? Um, 
those are three hairy problems that I think that technology has a real role in addressing. Um, and so what we have built at Clearhead is use artificial intelligence to build a digital therapist. So when you think about all the um, aspects of what a therapist should be doing, which is help you know, conduct an assessment to help you figure out what your problem is, create you a treatment plan so that you're addressing that problem, you know, tracking your progress and make sure you're, you're getting better, not worse, you know, and then referring you to a, a specialist if you're getting worse um, and, and, um, and making sure that you get the right care at the right time. Um, that is currently only possible with a human therapist. And we've been able to basically codify and digitize that with um, the Clearhead platform. Yeah. And it, and it really comes back to well-being. I, I, like on your website, that comes up a lot, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And the main thing really is like in terms of like, well, what does that mean? Um, and how, how does it work? So how it works is you come into our system, you chat with our chatbot, we come up with a, a digital well-being plan that you work through. It's super fun. It's interactive lessons and tools, um, really easy to, to engage. But, and we are helping you build that skill set around how to, to self-manage and, and know and if you do decide that you would like to see a therapist, um, we have a national directory of more than 150 therapists across the country. You can see them in person or online um, and you see their real-time availability and you just book the appointment with them. And just, we'll come back to the technology because I'm interested in that, but um, just from, you know, observing the landscape of mental health throughout New Zealand, I'm just curious for your reflections because you know, we live in one of the most beautiful countries in the world um, in terms of the ocean, the mountains, skiing, surfing, all these amazing things are here. There's good education system. Um, there's support networks in place. And yet we have some of the worst suicide numbers and have real issues with our young people um, who are going through a lot of really difficult things. Do you know any reflections on that in terms of what's going on in New Zealand? I think the thing that has surprised me is that after two years, I'm still no closer to figuring out that answer. Um, I don't know why, because a lot of the factors that we attribute to poor mental health and sort of the suicide numbers are also factors that exist in every other country across the world, at least in the, in the developed world. Um, so I don't understand why the numbers are so much higher here when the same problems exist globally. Um, and therefore, I think the only way I could see to helping solve that problem is that if I don't understand the root causes, all I can do is help build within people the solutions that they can find within themselves. Mm -hmm. hmm. So yeah, unfortunately, no great wisdom to share today about that. Um, I'm still trying to figure, I still am no closer and I've talked to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, that's why I asked the question because I figured in creating this, it must be a common theme that comes through is, is what's the source here? What, you know, and maybe, maybe that will be the next startup is looking at that. <laughs> How do we address that as well? Um, Cause I think, yeah, just, I've, I've got a friend, I'm going to interview him actually for the podcast, Jay Geldard, who's doing Etu Tangata, which is looking at um, promoting messages through schools about, you know, um, basically positive reinforcing messages. And uh, it, it seems to me like it's just a big issue for us as a society. Um, so anything is welcome that can help people to get solutions. And just coming back to the, the tech side of things in terms of, is it, 
is does it start out with the chat bot and sort of downloading what the questions are and then it's pulling out keywords and things and then providing helpful resources is that kind of how it works or yeah so basically the first part of the process feels like you're, you're texting your gp so we ask you a very similar question to what your gp would ask um, right and then and then we um do the analysis um behind the scenes um, it's not it's just done by a machine so people don't have to worry that someone else is judging them on the other side um, and then we put it all together and, and to help you form those insights about yourself that you can then kind of make the conclusion for yourself, like, you know, do you have a problem or not? How bad is that problem? And do you want to do something about it? If you do want to do something about it, we make it super simple for you to do so. Like you can either choose to see a, a therapist that specializes in the area that you're struggling with. Um, and we make it super easy to find who's there, um, when they're available and for you to request an appointment. On the other hand, we know majority of people don't um, find, don't seek therapy as the first port of call. So how do we still give you all the benefits of seeing a therapist, but done digitally? Mm. So you just work through that interactive program that we've designed. It makes perfect sense because, you know, we kind of focus on physical well-being, like go to the gym, do this number of repetitions, have this cardio, you know, like that's that's kind of accepted but we don't sort of have the same approach in a way to our mental health and mental well-being do we and 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 being as rigorous about that that what goes in is what comes out in some ways that's right. you know? exactly and so we we wanted to demystify a lot of that and um, make and support you to make those right decisions mm. and in terms of the main target group of people that you're trying to reach out to is it a certain demographic is it teenagers or young people or is it middle-aged people or is it everybody or yeah how are you focusing it from our perspective i think poor mental health affects everyone um there uh i think even if you look at the more high profile suicides it shows you that it doesn't matter what gender you are what ethnicity you are how old you are how rich you are how successful people think you are poor mental health will affect you. Um, so the, the, the product is designed so that it's very universally accepted. And we, we see that in our user demographics as well. Uh, but predominantly, we are focused on the next generation. So these are sort of like your young people and the generations coming through um, who are looking, uh, who are more pressured with mental poor mental health and who are increasingly looking at digital um, as, as their um, way of um, getting support um, and we think that that's the cohort that we will grow with yeah it's interesting to think about the next generation you know even beyond you and i our generation like i'm thinking of my children who are growing up truly sort of digital natives you know able to use technology in a way that my generation and others probably didn't use and in terms of other um tips or i guess what is it, what's the main message that you'd like to get out for people um, to, to be aware of, um, whether they come to use your tool or another tool or, you know, like what's, what are you hoping to change in society? Yeah, the main thing I wanted to change is that like don't suffer in silence because what we know is people wait many years before they actually seek help. Um, and a large part of it is the stigma. A large part of it is they don't know where to go, what to do. Um, and, I, you know, 
most people just Google the answers and Google's really not that helpful. So if you are just wanting a way of just trying to get a quick download on like what you're experiencing, what is it, what can you do, who can you see, what support is out there, what resources can you use to just try and address what you are experiencing, just try ClearHead. It's super simple to use. Um, and so um, just jump onto our website. It's clearhead.org.nz. Um, and, and just start the process, you know, like, um, and often this is a long lifetime journey. Uh, and the main thing we want to do is make it super simple for you to even start that process and start understanding yourself better because you, you, it, it, there's huge impact. You, you might think that you having poor mental health just affects you. That's not true. It impacts a lot of people around you. The other thing that we also wanted to support is that, um, even if the individual themselves don't have the insights that they need help, um, you around you as the support person around them, whether as a friend or family member or a colleague, uh, you can see what's going on. Like, you know, like I know it feels taboo to speak about it, but it really shouldn't. And then, and so if you feel that you, you've seen someone that you want to be able to support, you don't know how to, you don't know how to start the conversation. You don't know what to say. You don't even understand what mental health, poor mental health is you can also come and use the um, ClearHead system to educate yourself on that. So we've really empowered people on both ends of the spectrum. It's you, the person needing help, working through your personalized plan, or you, the person wanting to help someone else, whether it's because you've seen someone that needs help or that some, that person has come to you and you feel completely overwhelmed and, and because you're not trained to support and, and understand what's going on, um, you can always come onto ClearHead to, to do that too. Yeah, so yeah. it's really about and empowering and, and enabling capability in our communities because that's really what, where it's all happening. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds like education is a big part of this, isn't it? That just having the conversations, um, sometimes that's the, well, it's definitely the first step to be able to um, get support or get help. It's the only sustainable way, you know, you, if you educate people, it's the whole teach a man to fish versus give him a fish. Uh, we really believe in that. And um, as you think about the, just the increasing demand, as much as you can build that informal workforce, which is the people around you and, and you yourself self-managing, that's the only way our health system can cope. Mm. Yeah. And coming back to the name Clearhead, what, what was your thinking in terms of how you chose that name? Uh, yeah, um, I wanted to have a, a name that was two syllables. That was my criteria because I was like thinking like, what is like, you know, really great brands. It's like Google, Facebook, you know. Um, and, and so like um, these were brands that were just short and simple. And, and so that was my criteria when I was thinking about it. Um, we also wanted a name that... Uh, embody the outcome we wanted to achieve rather than what we were doing because that could evolve um, nor did we want to kind of um, name it a pro the problem that you're facing um, yeah and so we just it's a six weeks process where me and my co-founder just kept throwing names at each other um, and then one day we were, I was driving and we were both driving and we we're both just bantering on the phone and um, and yeah he was just like what about clearhead I was like Yes, that's it. <laughs> and there we go. That's how Queerhead came about. Wow. So it was, you knew immediately when you heard it, huh? <laughs> yes, we did. We knew immediately. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great name because I think, like you say, it doesn't limit you to one particular thing. Like I found when I was setting up the podcast, 
I was coming up with all kinds of names, but I'm so glad I didn't choose some of those ones because the term seeds, it's so universal. You know, it, it means I can talk about any topic pretty much. <laughs> and if I'd limited it to just like a social enterprise podcast or something, then I would have been yeah. really constrained by the exactly. name itself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, completely. And I like the, you told me about um, where the, the name seeds come about and it completely resonate with me. Yeah. Yeah. So what does the future hold? And, you know, like thinking it's, we're recording this, it's the end of 2020. So thinking like in 2030, what yeah. are you hoping that Clearhead is or has become? And yeah, where do you see technology growing to be able to support more in this area? Yeah. Um, at 10 years time, I would love that we would be synonymous with digital mental health, the same way that search is, you know, Google's synonymous with search. Um, we, I do want us to be this globally recognized and respected um, uh, uh, digital health brand that consumers trust. Um, that for me, and, and that we are continuing to create value and, and, and improve outcomes um, for people. Um, so I think for me, it's like in 10 years time, I want the global impact and reach. Um, and um, in terms of the, the technology of the product, I, I just want it to continue to be more seamlessly integrated in people's lives and, and that it is very intuitive and that the machine learning continues to get smarter, but in a helpful way, not in a scary um, way. So that's really where I, I, I want the ambitions of the company to be. So that, you know, I, I, I remember someone said, you know, I want to be a billionaire and not like it's because it's not like I want to be someone who makes a billion, who has a billion dollars. It's that I want to be a billionaire because I want to affect, you know, and improve the lives of a billion people. So. Right. So that would be a measure <laughs> of that happening, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No pressure, just a billion people that we will positively affect. <laughs> yeah. Well, the amazing thing is if you reflect on it, even 10 years ago, this sort of initiative uh, would have been difficult. But today, you know, you go to the remotest parts of Africa, everywhere in the world, people have phones, they have access to technology um, in a way that wasn't possible, you know, a couple decades ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Well, I was on your website before looking and you had other resources as well, like if you're not sleeping well, then what are some ways that you can... Yeah, we have a, a really awesome blog um, blog part of Clayhead. So um, I love reading blogs. And um, one of the things that we are known for is we just write very user-friendly, well, easy to consume, um, professionally written um, blogs that answers the commonly asked questions like, what do I do if I can't sleep? It's definitely useful information. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> cool. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to your website and that That'd way people can click through and they can find out more. And um, if there's any other resources that you'd like included for people, then just send them my way. But um, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time at this busy time of the year. And it's been fascinating to hear a bit of your journey as well. And I just can't help reflect thinking about you as a 15-year-old <laughs> arriving in a new country and, you know, like in a way what you've developed would have been helpful for you, you know, <laughs> 15 years ago. So um, yeah, it's kind of cool absolutely. to make those links between <laughs> somebody's past and, and what they're doing today. But um, thank you for sharing. And, and yeah, I hope it continues to, to grow because it's definitely an area that we need more um, support for people um, so that they can 
realize that their mental health is something that they can take charge of and that they can actually put steps in place that, that support being positive and, and, and growing in that area. Amazing. Yeah, I appreciate being on the podcast and thank you for letting me share my story and the impact that we want to make through um, using Queerhead. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Angela. I found it was really interesting to hear her background and how that's led into co-founding Clearhead. Make sure to check out their website in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this, then don't forget that there's more than 235 others in the back catalog and lots more information at theseeds.nz. There's also a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, a Twitter page, lots of ways to connect. Until next time.